I'm Duncan McLeod, and this is Tech Central's TCS Plus. Subscribe on YouTube at youtube.com slash techcentral and get our daily newsletter in your inbox every morning. It goes out around 5 a.m. You can get that at techcentral.co.za slash newsletter. Now, I'm very pleased to welcome Dr. Christoph Nevoet to Tech Central now. Uh, Christoph is FMB's chief data, FMB, first-ranked group, I beg your pardons, chief data and analytics officer and an expert in the field of artificial intelligence. Christoph, welcome to you. Thanks so much for joining us on Tech Central. Uh, th- th- thanks for the invite, Duncan. Thank you. Um, I'd like to talk a bit about your career history and your um, education, in fact, because um, there's an interesting backstory here, Christoph. You uh, you studied the f- in the field of artificial intelligence, specifically machine learning, I believe. You have a PhD in the subject. Um, with, through which institution? UP? University of Pretoria? University of Pretoria, that's right. Mm-hmm. Tell us a bit about um, why you ended up on that career path and why you studied in that field. Well, here's a long story, so I'll try and keep it very short. But, I mean, I've always wanted to be a computer engineer as a kid growing up, uh, programming, um, studied electronic engineering, uh, did honors. Um, I, I wanted to study in the U.S. because that's really where things are happening. Okay. So I, I studied at, um, at the North Carolina State, did a master's. I uh, came back because my girlfriend was here, and then uh, then I joined the university, and uh, joining the university, you have to do a PhD. So yeah. that's really how it works. Okay. But um, I think it was really the early days of artificial intelligence. So it was, um, you know, voice and image processing. When was um, this, the 1990s? 1990s. Mm-hmm. Um, and really, it was uh, artificial neural networks were really coming to the fore. Now, after that, the, the field has really evolved since, but yeah. we'll talk a bit uh, about that uh, later. Yeah. Sure, sure. So, I mean, you, you like many other kids, were interested in computers. You were saying before we started recording that your first computer was a ZX81, as was mine. It was a great little product for its time. Um, but moving into artificial intelligence and machine learning, that's a very um, specific discipline. How did your fascination with computers progress into the field of AI? Well, I think the, I mean, people have really seen a vision for how computers can change the world. And I guess mm-hmm. I've seen that as a, as a child, just the kind of things that you could do that your parents couldn't do. Um, and that, uh, you know, when you start working, um, if you're able to program and use computers, it really is, uh, it gives you a significant advantage in life and even in business. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, because of the advent of the, the, the amount of computing power times the amount of data that is available, um, you know, uh, multiplied by the algorithmic improvements that have been made, mm-hmm. have really, you know, transitioned um, society from being dependent on only human intelligence to being able to rely to a large extent um, on, on, on uh, machine intelligence yeah. for, for a lot of tasks. For sure, for sure. Now you did your PhD in, in on the subject. Tell us a little bit about your very basically about your your thesis and uh, and why you focused on the particular subject you did. Well, I was uh, really working on image and and speech um, processing. So okay. specific work that that I worked on uh, was uh, for the for PhD was was really on speech, and it was uh, really about. Um, creating um, language models or acoustic models yeah. for new languages. So we had multi-language libraries, and we said if you see the model with a very large corpus, you can create um, a speaker-independent mm-hmm. corpus, and then by we can adapt it like we, like we, we would adapt to a given speaker it can adapt to a new language. And by, by adjusting the acoustic parameters, you know, of the phonetic models mm-hmm. in hidden Markov uh, models, um, you know, we, we could basically um, train it um, to, to, to accelerate development of speech recognition in new languages. Amazing. Were, were computers powerful enough back then to put this into practice? That's a very good point. So a lot of the methods we used, we, we used to be, I coded everything myself, myself and another PhD student. Okay. We wrote our own libraries to do this and we wrote it in C++ because that's really what was available. We also used um, libraries like uh, P4, so portable programs um, for parallel processors, mm-hmm. um, to actually distribute this across the university's computers. So oh, wow. uh, at one stage, um, you know, I was using probably the bulk of the computing power available at UP. Uh, <laughs> we convinced them to put um, Linux machines in the labs instead of Microsoft okay. so that we can run in the background while everyone else was working. We just had to tone down the jobs during daytime so mm-hmm. that people working in the labs didn't get uh, bothered. And you had to write all kinds of um, you know, uh, use all kinds of techniques to make sure the answers actually got back reliably, et cetera. Yeah, you know, you would program this stuff in sockets, et cetera. 
which is kind of a lot of the underlying technology for the internet. Yes. At the same time, um, the guy next to me was 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 basically doing the routers for UUNet, which was the internet in South Africa at that point. Good grief. And we'd have our coffee discussions around what is the capacity of the internet in South Africa and should we up it, etc. Because we were running the internet. Yes. So so one day it got commercialized and we were like, who's who are these people that are running the internet now? Because yesterday we were still running it. Oh. Um, uh, so you were, were you familiar with all those guys from Rhodes University at the time who were involved in doing some of the commercialization work of the, yes. of the early internet? So we were actually not as much in the commercialization, yeah. but Rhodes was obviously part of, of, of the, the same internet, network. Of mm. the same network, mm. and we had the, the international links, and um, you know, the universities were funding it because that's really where I guess DARPANET started, uh, yeah. started the internet in the US, and uh, uh, linking with the US. Mm. So even when I was in the US, um, um, in '93, I mean, my, myself and my girlfriend, we were always talking. Um, um, you know, uh, we were using talk to, to chat because it was much cheaper than calling. Yeah. yeah, and this was before the World Wide Web. That was long before. Yeah, before the World Wide Web. Before WhatsApp now is pretty common, but if you think about it, we're the equivalent of uh, of WhatsApp. You know, 30 years ago. Yeah. Amazing stuff, amazing stuff. And computers, computer uh, uh, processing power has accelerated it many has accelerated times over in that significantly, time. Significantly, absolutely. The work that you were doing in the labs back then, um, I imagine you can do on modern computers in, in a matter of minutes rather than 24 hours, for example. Uh, it's, it, it's just advanced to that extent. Um, are, are, is a lot of what we're seeing around AI now and a lot of the um, excitement around and some of the applications that we're seeing emerging simply because uh, computers have advanced to the point where it becomes practical to do some of this stuff. So I think it's, it's the three things uh, that I mentioned. So I think the, the amount of computing power has imp- improved dramatically. Mm. Um, the, the, even the architectures that are applied nowadays, the traditional von Neumann machines, people spend a lot of work on computer architecture to make them faster for traditional applications. But now you would see like NVIDIA, um, obviously being able to to run things in parallel and, mm-hmm. and actually even lower bit, you don't need 64 bits uh, for 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 more simple artificial neural mm. networks, but you have got lots of neurons, and you need to be able to run algorithms that do basically multi- matrix yeah. multiplication at a very big scale. Mm-hmm. Um, and the architectures have also evolved to be able to run these algorithms, and that's mm. why Nvidia is now one of the hottest stocks yes. in the market because they are really good at doing these chips. Because you, at some point, you will hit Moore's law. Um, But the architectural improvements have advanced that. But that's just the one factor. The second one is the data. It is really about data in the field, even if it's AI. Mm-hmm. If you don't have good data, you, you, there's not much that you, you that you can do just with the algorithms itself. Yeah. And then the third one is really algorithmic advances have been massive. So we were still using, let's say, traditional neural networks as a feature classifier together with maybe a hidden Markov model or some other model to model sequencing. Of words, etc. Okay. Whereas um, deep learning really revolutionized how you can train um, neural networks. That happened in the 2010s. Mm-hmm. And now since 2017 with um, the, the publication by, by Google um, of the transformer um, neural network architectures have re- again now completely um, opened up the door for generative AI in a major way. Mm-hmm. And so there's actually been a couple of architectural, oh, oh, sorry, algorithmic evolutions that have been as important as the, as the amount of computing power and or the data. I can't actually think of anyone better in this country than you to ask where this is going, but we're going to get to that a little bit later in the, in the discussion. I want you to put on your prognostication hat and maybe have a look at where we're likely to be 10 years from now. But let's, let's, uh, let's stick with the current. I actually want to let's, let's go back a little bit into history because I want to spend a little bit more time on your past because there's some really interesting stuff here. You uh, at the University of Pretoria were involved in, in co-designing um, a new computer engineering degree at the University of Pretoria. Tell me a bit about that. Well, picture. absolutely. I'll tell you what, any engineering student uh, can tell you that there's some um, subjects that people hate, like um, drafting, um, uh, some of the more mechanical engineering uh, things, even electric machines, etc. So if when we did the electronic engineering degree back then, um, it really incorporated, it, they, you had your light current and your heavy current mix. And like I said before, actually the light current is not about the amount of current, it's actually about information engineering. Mm-hmm. And we said, what about, I just came back from the US, completed the master's there, and um, we had some discussions, and Professor Leuschner, who's unfortunately passed away by now, he was um, the head of the department there, yeah. and he said, why don't we create a new degree that actually 
will be much better suited to to this. And we basically, uh, myself and, a, and another guy, Dr. Jan Hollem, mm-hmm. um, um, we, we put together the syllabus. We were tasked to do that. Um, so that was really the first then computer engineering degree in the country. Okay. And that was, it's obviously extra registered. Um, it really incorporates computer science um, together with electronic engineering. Okay. So it, it, it retains a lot of the fundamentals of electronic engineering. So, uh, but it obviously we'll have computer engineering. It has network um, engineering. Sure. It's got um, telecommunications, signal processing control systems. Right. So all the really strong fundamental subjects, but you are learning to program as well. So you understand um, really um, n- not just coding, software yeah. engineering, uh, database constructs, et cetera, which then is really – and that's really what the market is looking for. If I'm hiring mm-hmm. uh, people now, yeah. um, that is really the kind of skills that the market is looking for. And even more data engineering, I guess, is like what Stellenbosch have now recently launched a degree that kind of just takes it to the next level in terms of what the market needs. Interesting. Interesting. So you joined First Rand in uh, 2004, almost 20 years ago now, uh, I think working in the West Bank division. That's right. Uh, in 2007, you became head of credit and in 2010, FMB's chief risk officer um, and FMB, a big pardon, and First Rand's head of retail credit at the time, I think. And then in 2016, you became CEO of FMB's consumer division. Um, and four years later, you were appointed to this newly created role of chief data and analytics officer. I'm guessing you helped design that role. Yes, that is exactly right. So, <laughs> so I, I spoke to a group um, CEO, and and he said, um, is to put forward a proposal. He likes the idea, but let's put forward, a, a, you know, the proposal, bring it to Stratco, and and we'll take it from there. So, um, yeah. So, so we actually now have more than twenty CDAOs in First Round Group. Okay. So we really see it as a strategic role. So traditionally, let's say ten years ago. People would have, you know, most companies would have had a, a head of business intelligence. Or, um, uh, then a lot of companies started seeing, well, this is more important than that. We should have a chief data officer. Mm-hmm. But actually what we're saying with the chief data analytics officer is the bigger part of the value add that you're driving is actually through, um, through decisioning which really requires analytics and or AI Mm -hmm. um, in many cases. And that actually is quite a strategic role. So if you think about what the CEO of, you know, of a Google or a Meta or or these firms are, they are really driving technology. That is at the heart of their business model. It's obviously understanding consumer needs and meeting consumer Mm -hmm. needs, but with a deep understanding of the technology. And what we're saying is that even in financial services, it is actually quite critical to be able to understand what um, what the technology can do for you, um, um, and that therefore it becomes of strategic importance. Financial services institutions are becoming more like technology companies, aren't they? Absolutely. Um, um, all of the other financial services where I, I deal with now, they've also appointed CDAOs or they're in the process of appointing them. So, mm-hmm. um, And yes, I think the technology focus has always has been there for at least a decade, if yeah. not 15 years. So people have understood, I mean, in FNB was obviously the first um, to launch cell phone banking, to, to, to launch an app. Um, and really has, I mean, I think we're very proud um, mm. of what we have done in the digital space. Uh, this is really about putting the intelligence behind it mm-hmm. so that it's not just a button that you can click on, but it is actually, um, it is doing something smart that is keeping you safer, yeah. um, that it is giving you credit that is automated uh, 24-7, mm-hmm. um, that even insurance can use uh, intelligence so that it's contextual. That's really, I guess, what we're trying to do with right. this. Well, take, take me through your role. Take me through the role of a chief data and analytics officer and what 80% of your work involves. What are you doing on a day-to-day basis? Okay, that's a, that's a, that's a, I guess that's a great point. So my job at, at my level is quite strategic. As I said, we have got quite a number of CDIOs that are sitting at the different segments. So that would be in an FNB and a West Bank, we call that retail and commercial okay. and, and a corporate and institutional, which is really R&B. Then we have transact, lend, invest, insure, which is the pillars. Those are the main activities that we do in the bank. Then there's interactions like we do. We have 2 billion interactions a month streaming from our platform. Uh, we've got um, a customer which is obviously very important. And then we've got the functional areas. So what, we, what, what my job is really is to understand what is the value drivers across all of these. Mm-hmm. So that's what we work towards. So we have actually, we have financial monetize, uh, monetization targets. Adding a billion rand of PBT per annum is really my financial target. Good and that we have, that we're running across the group. So that's a million incremental over, over and above what you added last year. 
a so billion last year a year. You went a billion a year, yes. <laughs> Um, and um, no pressure, no pressure. <laughs> so that's really, I guess, and that really is. You have to create value for customers. Mm. Um, that's the only way that you can really um, be able to monetize this. Um, to to get that, you obviously have to build data products on platform um, that really that is capturing all of this data um, in a smart way that can be accessed and models <laughs> that are automating decisions because <laughs> this is not this value is not created by creating management information. Um, we don't count that. If we create management information, then management creates the value. But if we are deploying models that can really automate mm-hmm. this, um, result in better take-up rates for products that can automate and be smart rate credit. Like we have a trillion rand lending book plus in the book in the in the bank. So even small improvements on credit mm-hmm. is, is a huge lever uh, for a financial institution. But it's really across a range of things, including you know some level of automation. Yeah. And then that sounds all very sexy, but to get that, you obviously have have to have the data on the platform. So I've talked a bit in reverse now, but that was initially a big focus of this was we have built, um, I guess, quite a powerful um, information architecture that we have been making sure that we're getting, you know, we have uh, probably about 800 source systems Mm -hmm. in the group. Um, to get, and we've now got more than 95% of what we define as key data okay. on, a, on a central or a single unified platform. It's not just in one place. Um, it, it's on-prem and, 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 and in cloud, mm-hmm. but really, I guess that's really the journey. So those are the things that we're busy with. And obviously, the ethics and the government and uh, governance, et cetera, are very important parts of being able to do this in a trusted way mm-hmm. that delivers against customer expectations, meets regulatory needs, et cetera. We're going to talk about the ethics of AI in a bit, but um, let's let's start with brass tacks on, on, on AI. Why is it important to the first round group and what's it going to allow you to do? So, so, so AI is becoming increasingly important. And, and what I always say, we, we, a lot of what we do does not really require AI. So, for example, on the scoring side, et cetera, a lot of those models are, you know, could be logistic regressions. Uh, sure. So that is really the bread and butter um, um, or GLM models in the insurance side, et cetera. But a lot of the time you can create better features that allow better decisioning. So part of that, feeding into that, if you want to do complex, you know, behavioral hypersegmentation, um, then um, uh, traditional techniques don't really cater as mm. well for, mm. uh, uh, for that. Um, on the fraud and money laundering side has been obviously an area where we've pioneered and led with the use of AI-type models. Just because the, the problems, it's more complex, it's more interrelationships. It's not just the customer, but who else the customer is interacting with mm. and paying and receiving funds from doing network analysis, etc. So that really has lent itself to the application of using more um, mm. advanced models. And ironically, the, the sign-off requirements um, are, are not as strict. Mm-hmm. So we have a financial crimes technical committee. Okay, you can imagine we have lots of committees in the back. Sure. But that signs off on pretty complex models that are used to uncover financial crime, fraud risk, et cetera, yep. that would be very difficult to get through a prudential authority if we applied them, for example, for capital mm. or to get sign-off from auditors for um, IFRS 9 or IFRS 17. So that's banking or insurance provisioning. Mm-hmm. Those models, ironically, are much more simple and not, okay, primitives, maybe not the greatest word, but you know they are, they, they, we, the innovation in the, on that side is significantly less mm. than where you are. Sometimes you innovate where you are allowed to innovate and obviously where you need yeah. um, more complex models to be able to solve problems. Sure, sure. So where are you applying AI techniques um, right now to good use? You've mentioned fraud and, and money laundering. Is that the... Is that, is that okay, no, that was the starting point. So okay. I think the, a, a big focus um, really is on, on, on this hyper-personalization of contextual offers. Uh, for customers. So that is a complex topic because it needs to take into account um, the customer, the customer's needs. uh, um, And and in terms, uh, we also have to assess um, the customer's, you know, financial wellness, et cetera, in terms of positioning products. And you have to look at uh, short-term and long-term outcomes. So because it's no use you showing a product the customer's not going to buy. If we, yeah. uh, It would be great if everybody bought the house and we want to finance. But that is something that happens really in a very, in a narrow context. Mm. At the same time, um, you know, we got to address the whole set of needs from, you know, spending less than you earn on the transact side, optimizing spending behavior, um, 
et cetera. We've got great tools for that. Mm. I think we're trying to put more of the AI power behind that. And then obviously, like I said, the, the pillars are quite a big construct for us. So the transact, lend, invest, insure. Okay. All of them have got their own modeling teams, et cetera, and we try to put together a unified view for, for customers. So that's quite a big focus. I think, I think um, you know, automation of activities is another one uh, that, is, that, is, that, is, that is quite big. And there's a lot of mundane work that people really hate doing mm. um, that you can automate um, and um, just make, it, you know, make your staff more, more efficient and more productive. Yeah, yeah. So how do you measure successful outcomes here? I mean, you mentioned the 1 billion rand PBT per year, um, but I presume there are other metrics you use to measure success in this area. Yes. What, what, what are some of so those So I think metrics? the important thing about, uh, about a strategy, and if it's, you know, any strategy, is it has to align with what the business objectives are. Yeah. So if we are helping the business deliver against the business's objectives, you know, then we're doing a good job. So, mm-hmm. so typically, you know, what we've got a number of objectives for, you know, I guess uh, we've got a couple of C's as a big strategy for us. So more customers, more to customers. So that's basically cross-sell. We're optimizing, uh, I, I mentioned before, for example, credit and capital mm-hmm. as part of that. Cost efficiency would be another one. So, so all of these measures come into it. And then obviously the, the other measures, um, these are probably more outcome measures. Um, the other measures in terms of customer satisfaction, et cetera, um, are the same ones that business use. Because it's no use we have a different way of measuring output than business. Yeah, so sure. it is really about not having a separate strategy for it. But really, um, it has to be integrated with everything you do. Exactly, it has to be integrated with what the business wants to um, achieve, and that is really, I guess, uh, what makes it powerful. Yeah. So I guess uh, in your role, you need to interface with every area of the business and understand what uh, what the drivers are in those parts of the business. What what the people working in those areas actually need um, and and how they can become more efficient and use these tools to... Duncan, that's a, that's a, I guess that's a great point. Mm. Uh, what we found actually is that the bulk of our CDAOs were in leaders, business leadership positions as well. Mm. So um, in terms of, you know, quite a number of our segment um, CDAOs and even some of the pillars were CEOs of business units in other right. areas. So because you need hired, to understand the business concerns. You need to understand business, yeah. exactly. Mm. Um, so there, there are important technology considerations, but that's really what we do on the platform side. So there's quite a lot of specialized skills that you need that relate to a data analytics platform, mm. creating it, the information architecture, and the, the, the modeling of data, and the data engineering and all of that. But really to make this strategic, it has to impact business. Yes. Otherwise, uh, it is something on the side. And people will say, well, look, it's nice. Look at this BI dashboards that we have. Yeah. But they won't be able to attribute any value to it. Mm. So, so what I've found, and in, even internationally, when I, when I took the job you know, two years ago, I'd go to Gartner Conference. Okay, they were virtual because it was sure. um, COVID period. And, and the amazing thing to me was that the CDIO equivalents yeah. um, uh, you know, in overseas banks, they didn't have monetization targets. Wow. They were all debating um, measuring the value of data and whatever. And I said, but don't you have targets that you have to deliver against? What is your performance metrics? And they were not, they, 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 it, it, it does seem that I think that this is still an evolving field, mm-hmm. even globally. And I tell you, even in South Africa, if you ask other CDOs, what is their monetization targets? They might not have n- a mm-hmm. number. Where, where, where does this role typically fit inside an organization? Um, does does, does a, a chief data officer, whatever the role is called, typically report to the CIO, to the CEO? How, that, how? Is a, that is a great question. In mm. our case as well, I guess, if you think about our group, it's highly federated. So I, yeah. I report to Jacques Solier, okay. not to Alan. So I'm mm. not, I guess the role is not a, it's not a Stratco level yet uh, in my case, but it is at least Jacques is, you know, running, let's say, 60% of group profit. So that is… He's the CEO of F&B. So he's the CEO. And Alan Pullinger is the CEO of First Rand. First Rand, yes, mm-hmm. exactly. So Jacques is at least, and it's, it's retail and commercial. So that, yeah. that includes… West Bank and it includes direct access and a number of other brands that are sitting in retail and commercial and of course the broader Africa yep. impact of that uh, but I guess that's been um, uh, luckily I've been in group for long enough and been in different places so that probably actually is quite a success factor as well yes. so these jobs are um, it, it, it has become um, you know I think picking the right person with some knowledge in the group mm. has been we've also grown our own caliber very well so we've not really hired executives in this area from outside uh, mm. for, 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 a, for a long time because 
we've had a, such a good feeder mm. of, of graduates coming from universities that have got the analytical background. That's good to hear. Uh, and and that really, we've got a community of 1,900 now in data analytics, full-time mm. employees. Just to allied to that question, should, um, and there'll be lots of companies, not just in financial services, but across the board, watching this and listening to this discussion, and, and they'll probably be at an, at an earlier stage of their um, thinking around AI. If they're looking at a project like this, is it something that should be deployed by the IT department or is it something that should be happen elsewhere in the business, in your view and your experience? Yeah, so I, I do think that it needs a, a separate focus. So, mm -hmm. so even, even our CIO for our data analytics platform is, is a separate skill set the kind of people that we have here, because if you think about it, you're not running an operational line of business system. Yeah. You're basically, you know, we built a analytics platform. So the reservoir, the big data platform, um, the compute uh, parts of that, the enterprise data warehouse, the integration mm -hmm. fabric, the data APIs, all of those components, those are all the IT jobs in mm -hmm. our area. Yes. And if you think about them, they're actually quite different from what even a traditional, um, you know, CIO job would be. Yeah. So it requires its own technology focus, but that is really just a platform to deliver the value and to to embed analytics uh, um, and to create a data-driven culture. Mm -hmm really has to happen at an executive, at an exco level in each of the different business units and segments and, and areas in the bank. And look, at the maturity varies widely, even in our own group. Sure. And that's natural. Some areas, naturally, you had to, in retail, you had to have scoring in place, you know, even a decade ago. Yeah. If you didn't have scoring, you would be nowhere, right? So, so those areas naturally have progressed and have become quite advanced, even into the commercial side, mm -hmm. uh, you know, and then... Um, the, the retail um, and commercial bank, therefore, overall quite mature. Corporate and institutional has got pockets of excellence. Mm -hmm. If you run a markets business, you've got algo trading and you've got lots of um, you know, quite complex areas, but these areas are typically quite siloed. Yep. So putting the, together an aggregate view across um, you know, a corporate uh, wholesale bank um, is actually is quite harder. Mm. But One size doesn't fit all. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Let's talk a bit about generative AI because that's been uh, the hot button topic for the last six months ever since uh, ChatGPT was released into the world by OpenAI. Um, tell me a bit about how First Rand has experimented with generative AI um, models like um, ChatGPT yes. and, and others, other la large language models as they're called. And, and what impact do you see uh, generative AI having on productivity in the bank? Okay, that's a, that's, a, that's a great point. And okay, uh, firstly, let me um, say, I think generative AI is going to be a game changer. So like I said, we have had, we've had early you know, artificial neural networks, we had deep learning, and now more recently we had reinforcement learning and generative AI, which are really reshaping, they're changing the game. Mm. Um, I guess even Goldman Sachs have formed the view like what China did for manufacturing in the previous three decades was to lower global inflation by about a percentage point a year. Mm -hmm. uh, they're saying generative AI or AI, but generative AI is a big part of that, you know, has the potential to lower inflation by more than a percentage point for the next decade. And if you ask me, a lot of the pickup in the global markets, and you would have seen that in the tech stocks, have gone, mm. have gone crazy again. Yeah. Um, the market, despite interest rates being at despite everything else, yeah, um, this has been the one area of the of the economy and of the global economy where there is significant productivity improvements and improvements in um, education and healthcare across all sectors that are now possible. Because I guess the beauty of this is before. Um, um, when I worked 30 years ago, when I worked on um, artificial um, 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 intelligence or machine learning, mm -hmm. it was on very narrow focused areas. So something that you did in one area was not really transportable. Um, if I used, uh, let's say, recurrent uh, neural networks or artificial neural networks with the hidden Markov models for speech, it really was uh, applied to speech. Mm -hmm. Now, um, the, 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 the models, we've actually unleashed um, the, this transformer neural network technology on knowledge itself. And, and that's quite a big thing to understand. It's, so, so people think, well, it's just sentence completion. Mm. This thing does sentence completion. It's much more than that. I mean, we have basically put the human corpus or a very big part 
of the human corpus is now downloadable into something that's a couple of gigs big. Mm -hmm. And it's not just sitting in OpenAI or um, with Google or uh, with Meta. Um, it's actually become kind of public domain. It's open sourced, mm. uh, these LLM models. You can actually buy these NVIDIA chips if you can find them because they're in yes. short supply and, and you can the, put them in your service room. And the truth is you don't actually need the NVIDIA chips. You yeah. don't need to train the LLMs. They're already trained for you. Right. And they're already at a level that is so advanced they don't need to be much more advanced to understand English. Mm. And not just English. Where I'm, I'm, it, they Any understand language. you know, biochemistry. They understand, you can ask them questions on nuclear physics and you'll be amazed at what they know. Mm -hmm. um, okay, so- No, in inverted commas. What they know. Mm -hmm. Okay, they don't know the answers, but they, they know the relationships between the concepts. Mm. It's not just word, word completion. They, they, of course, I think there are major- um, uh, obvious shortcomings yeah. in the first uh, generation of these, which everybody has been, you know, poking into. Of course, these models uh, can, you know, they, they okay, I, I think first, let's say the privacy and the intellectual pro uh, um, pr uh, um, protection uh, concerns of the open, the public versions of these, that's quite clear. The one that if scrapes can, stuff from the internet. If you put yeah. your stuff in there, you are basically making it public. Mm. Okay, so, so clearly, you know, you have to address that and you address that by using um, a private version of this. So use your own instance that is hosted by your favorite cloud provider that you can access and that does not feed any information back mm -hmm. into open AI I was or, to, ask about or that, to anyone else. Yeah. Okay. Then I guess the, the, the next big concern is um, people say the models hallucinate. Of course, they they hallucinate. They are basically, they, they don't up. know the details <laughs> of your company. Yeah. Your company's detail, the answers, uh, perhaps because you also haven't put your, you haven't published all your own information mm. that it could read it. And frankly, even if it was there, it would be such a smidgen of information in the wider. It is generalizing the concepts. But these things that it gets wrong, are they because – is this because it found wrong information on the internet or is it actually making stuff up? Well, it's both. It's both. It, it is both. Yeah. Some cases we find that it gives a wrong answer, but then there was actually wrong information published. Mm -hmm. But in general, it does – make things up. Of course it does. It generalizes. Mm. So like the human brain, yeah. it is using a lot of information and it is it is it is basically interpolating between a number of data points that it has yeah. around knowledge. And sometimes it is actually telling you how things maybe should work. Actually, when you ask it about features on our app, we'll tell you you click that and you click that and then it solves the problem. And we're like that would be brilliant if we did that, but we haven't done that yet. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, so what you have to do is you have to have your own corpus mm -hmm. and you have to, um, you don't have to retrain the LLM. Okay. Because that is a lot of work that yeah. people say, do we need to retrain the LLM on you for your own topic? And um, the feedback we're getting is even highly specialized firms don't, it, it knows enough about biochemistry or like I said, nuclear physics that you could use it in those areas. It doesn't necessarily know the answers though. It can understand the question. So that is where you have to pair that with your own answer that is specific to your company, maybe sure. even to a specific customer about what is the answer that we should give this customer so you train it. in that context. You have to train it. Mm -hmm. now, the most simple way of doing that is what they call prompt engineering. You would just put text in there and it can use that text to generate an answer. A more sophisticated way is to embed your information into um, to basically vectorize the text of your of your corpus mm -hmm. um, into, and we, we call that embedding. Mm. And that allows it to access your information and then you could even constrain it so that it will not give an answer if you do not, do not have an answer. So it will not hallucinate. So those are the mechanisms. Look, this stuff is not public released yet, mm -hmm. but this is what I guess everybody is working on. It is just uh, what is. Um, and then I guess the next evolution is agents. So you are basically, people say, well, it gave you a wrong answer to write a piece of code. And we say, okay, but, but did, you give the did you give it a chance to run the code and test the output against what you asked it to do, et cetera? No. So that's where then, I guess, agents are next. Uh, or, 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 and these things have been coming out in the last couple of months. So yeah. libraries like Langchain give you the ability to really to, to write agents that will, that will just do it smarter. It won't ask it just once. Yes. It will prime it properly. It will get an answer. It will test the answer. If the answer is not right, it gets a chance to correct it, and it will give you then, uh, let's say, a better answer. Mm -hmm. And I guess that is really um, – so think about this, the level of sophistication of the answers that you're going to get from these models. Yeah. Um, I don't know if you use, use GTP4. I have on Bing, yes. Okay. 
on Bing. Okay, mm. on Bing, I have to admit, is really poor because oh, it's okay. rephrasing your question as a as a search. Right. You you have to unfortunately pay the twenty dollars a month, get well, access to ask. GTP four. Okay. And I must say, it is very. It can do. It it does. Uh, you know, inference in questions. You can ask it logical reasoning questions mm. where it can actually give you a decent answer. The maths and the statistics is almost first year level. Okay. Um, uh, it's 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 pretty first year level. Yes. Okay. I, I think so. I mean, uh, that's that's that, that's not a professional opinion. I didn't benchmark it, uh, but that's kind of my experience. I mean, in the the, the test, obviously, the the entry um, for university exams at ACES those now. Yeah. Yeah. So those are uh, how, how quickly is this technology going to advance? It is going to advance very rapidly. Mm -hmm. I think the part, the language understanding is already mature. It it probably doesn't need to advance that much. The generating of an intelligent answer in reply to the question using the right context, et cetera, that's where firms are going to spend a lot of effort mm. to make sure that it can actually give you the right relevant answer um, in, the, in the context that you are asking it. Mm -hmm. um, so, yes, I think for different fields, it will advance very rapidly. Uh, law, we speak to law firms. Um, this is going to be a big thing. Um, you know, one law firm told me that uh, in their experience now, uh, the model can draft as well as a junior associate, mm -hmm. the new associate. Mm -hmm. The point, though, is it's not going to stop there. It will, it will get better. I mean, the, will it ever be as good as a more expert person? But, you know, probably that might take a very long time. Mm. Um, um, and um, I guess so, so, you know, people get afraid of what this is going to happen, what's going to happen to jobs. Um, and I think the the point what I what I what I always say is that you know your job will not be taken by AI, but someone mm. else using AI may be so productive that they are out competing you, and that's why I do think that um, using technology. If you look at the US and China, they are the most technology advanced uh, um, you know countries in the world. They've got the lowest unemployment. Mm. So unfortunately, well, fortunate, unfortunate. I think it's a great opportunity um, to use, but it's also a threat if. You know, a country or a company or a person, um, you know, remains oblivious of the technology. Yeah. Yes, it, it 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 is. It will have a um, a societal impact. Yeah, yeah. Uh, is there a risk though that um, at some point companies are going to become too reliant on this technology? I'm, I'm thinking of um, call centers, for example. I already, as a consumer, get frustrated interacting with call centers because then it's the the companies involved. To reduce costs, make it very difficult to speak to a human being, and you're always tried to. They always try to keep you on the IVR system, and try to solve your problems automatically, and you don't get to speak to a human being. And I know why companies do that because there's a very high cost associated with man staffing all of those call centres. But do you think there's a risk that consumers are going to get frustrated if they are if companies suddenly say, "Wow, this is a fantastic idea. We can get rid of all our call centre agents, and we can have computers answering." AI is answering um, people's yeah. Look, that requests. would be that would be a risk. Uh, yeah. Look, some, some digital only companies, you never had an option of talking to people anyway. That is true. I mean, try to speak <laughs> to somebody at Apple. No, uh, no you guess, can't. You Uber, can't. Airbnb, etc. Unless you have fraud. Mm. If you have fraud, uh, you probably get to email to somebody. Uh, but otherwise, mm. uh, there's nobody to talk to. Mm. Okay. Um, so, so I guess that said, yes, I, I think companies have to be very responsible in how you you, t you 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 take up the technology but it certainly has huge potential to improve customer experience mm -hmm. so if you think about the way that it um, like I said, can it understand what the customer is asking absolutely yes will it even know if it doesn't quite know what you're asking so that it can ask so that it, we can prompt it to ask a follow-up question mm -hmm. absolutely mm -hmm. the, the, even our existing models can do that so we have been using you did ask before I mean about generative AI we have yeah. been using generative AI for for um, you know more than half a decade okay. with a very specialized application so reports that we uh, re, um, our, our let's say suspicious transaction reporting enhanced due diligence report that we mm -hmm. provide to the FIC uh, uh, they are written with generative AI, but with human supervision then. Yes. Humans look at it and, and, and may modify, et cetera, because they have to comb through you know, dozens right. or more of systems and data to get to an answer, which they are really efficient at. I think um, in call centers, I mean, the potential for customer, for actually answering customers' questions better. I think there the trick for us is really how do we embed our local information? Because mm -hmm. if you currently ask uh, GTP4 even yeah. what, uh, about what you want to know from the bank, it's not going to give you the answer that you need. Yes. Uh, so, so, so doing that is still a big thing. And then putting the human in the loop, uh, you know, helping like our advisors transitioning much more of our st staff 
to offer integrated customer advice. That is a very big strategy for us. So it's about making your people more productive rather than replacing your people. Yes, yeah. that is that is right. Yeah, uh, I think that's absolutely right. As a group, we have been, you know, growing uh, for for the longest period. You know, um, in terms of staff numbers, mm-hmm. um, and it is really about making sure that productive. If your staff are productive, you can afford them because they're creating value. Uh, I think the counterpoint is um, for companies that are not productive, the company mm. would not uh, would not be able to afford because the value of labor will be less than the cost of labor. Mm-hmm. And that's I really think that is the economic principle that is important with technology. When people think technology will take away jobs, uh, they are actually missing the most fundamental economic concept, mm-hmm. and that is that, that technology improves the value of labor mm. because it improves the output. Yes. And that is why it actually allows you to create these jobs. And yes, these are then more value adding jobs because people are, and you don't need a PhD in AI uh, to use these. That mm. is the beauty of the generative technology. It mm. actually can work in English. Yes. So, so that is where we think it actually can help um, all staff, mm-hmm. not just like in contact centers, etc. Mm-hmm. Let's talk a bit about um, cloud cloud applications versus uh, on-premises, because I think this is an important discussion around around this topic. We've seen there have been a couple of examples where sensitive corporate information has leaked through GPT, and we've seen companies like Apple, for example, saying to staff, you may not use these platforms because they're concerned that they're proprietary and Apple's a highly secretive company. Yes. They're worried that, that um, information about products they're developing, for example, could leak through these systems. So they've said, no, you do not use any third-party uh, large language models if you work for Apple, um, you, I, I'm interested that FMB is is doing a lot of its development in in through cloud service providers rather than building infrastructure in on premises in your own data center. Um, are there risks associated with that? I know you said you 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 work very closely to cordon off this data and and you don't allow it to be shared generally. But what are some of the the, the rules you need to put in place to ensure that? that there isn't a risk associated with using a third-party cloud service provider in doing this kind of work. Absolutely. Look, I think um, at the outset, uh, probably, you know, most firms in the world have got a lot more data in the cloud than they maybe are recognizing. Okay? Okay. So if you're using a Microsoft stack, um, um, then you you probably are hosting that in Azure. Yeah. Okay, so a lot of your data will already be there. So you, you have to be quite confident that Microsoft Azure is going to keep all your emails and your team recordings and your SharePoints and everything else safe. You obviously um, are, are ultimately still responsible for that. Your access controls, yeah. everything else has to be really good, deal factor authentication, etc. But the tools are there. Okay. Yeah. So that said, um, we still run very big data centers because it is actually cost-effective to run the scale of operations um, that we have um, on-prem. Mm-hmm. But a lot of the computational loads Etc. If you are doing in end of day calculations or you're doing month end runs, etc., a lot of that is is variable load, mm-hmm. and the computation running those computational jobs in the cloud is just a lot more efficiency. But in mm-hmm. the same way that you have to protect um, your your emails and your staff environment, you know you need to have the same level of controls. And whether you're using Azure or you're using um, Amazon Web Services, at least both have got significant hosting in South Africa. Yes. So it's also it's even in the national interest. Um, this, the, the, the data is not even leaving the country and it's managed here. Obviously, that doesn't mean it's unsafe to use other jurisdictions. Uh, I think. Um, in, in European uh, data privacy laws are also very strict, mm. so so you probably can place some reliance on that. You obviously have to make sure that you are that you have got the environments set up right. Yes. Um, so so the points around using ChatGPT, yes, in, on our own um, bank devices at the moment, still ChatGTP is disabled. Oh. You can't go onto OpenAI.com. Oh. Okay. So we say stuff, you can use it, but you gotta, you're you going to be using it on your own device. Or mm. um, if you are part of the of the group that is working on um, our own instance, yes, then you have a separate login, and that is obviously oh. hosted um, in the cloud. Um, and the, But that is, that is a private ring-fenced environment. Mm-hmm. And that will have to have the same level of security. And like I said before, that will address the, the, the PI and the IP issues um, as well. Let's talk about AI skills now, uh, because you have embarked on a reskilling project within the first round stable. Tell us a bit about that uh, project, uh, which staff, which employees are involved, 
And and how difficult it is to run a project like this in an area where I imagine skills are in high demand? Yeah, so I think let's start with the wider staff. So mm. Mark Nasilla that you had here before, um, he's been uh, pioneering a very big uh, data literacy mm-hmm. and now AI literacy program across the group, which anyone can attend and the meetings are recorded. So basically... Um, any staff member in the group that wants to understand uh, what you know, what is the latest development, this how this will impact mm-hmm. you, what are the you know the ethical implications, um, um, and and how do you formulate business cases, what kind of applications or uh, use cases are good, etc. Uh, that is a that is a very big general awareness topic, so that we yep. get people also excited about um, uh, using it. Now, then obviously we have got different needs in the data analytics community itself. Um, I must say that we still have a variety of training needs. It's not just AI. Mm. So we, for example, have a data engineering academy because that was one of the biggest um, areas of shortage. It's not the analytical people because we have a lot of them. Uh, not that we, that, that we don't like uh, more good analytical people, but data engineering, we have an academy. We have an information architecture academy. We um, have got academy for, um, for data modeling. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we've got a whole host of other specialized skills. So all of these, actually, we are still on an ongoing basis training up people. Then there is, um, let's say, tool-specific training that uh, that we're doing. We have now, uh, I guess, uh, recently launched a generative AI training program that is every second week okay. uh, on generative AI. Because, like I said, I mean, actually, um, the irony was um, uh, we have a lot of PhDs in AI in the back. Uh, so, so we said, okay, so for this generative AI, so we said, so, okay, so who's the, who is our top uh, generative AI expert? And we were like, um, we were like and, I, and, I, and I were with uh, Mark Nasilla. I was having this discussion. And you've got this guy and this guy. And like, um, they all recently completed, like, like five years ago, their PhDs, on, <laughs> see, some of them on natural language processing. Amazing. And I said, okay, but, um, and then, but the Transformers paper was only published 2017. So that actually... Their PhDs predated. They all have to relearn how to use the new models, mm. the new techniques, etc. Mm-hmm. And like I was saying earlier, even the thinking around the techniques and platform usages has been every month there has been new releases in how to use it. So I do think that this is going to be – it's a very exciting period for people in the field. Um, it's exciting people for new people to come in because it's not necessarily technically that challenging. Using it is not that challenging, um, but there is a massive amount yeah. of relearning that has to happen across across the spectrum. And then once we deploy tools, let's say Microsoft Copilot, et cetera, to staff mm-hmm. at scale, but this stuff is very intuitive to use. I don't think it, there's not much training to do when it's suggesting what the answer to an email should be. Right. That's like, I mean, come on, yeah. just... Uh, like, um, but 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 I think it's a, it's also creating awareness of the risks. What it means, you are still ultimately accountable if you have, or if you are using a generative AI or any other technique yeah. to generate output. You are still ultimately fully accountable for that. So the human in the loop has to understand their responsibilities mm. because if they abdicate that, then you clearly you know you, you have a have a risk that is not well managed. Yeah, and it's a risk, I suppose, as well. If an employee decides. Uh, I'm a bit hungover today. I don't really feel like working. Let's just let the AI do all the answers to the emails and then the AI is sending out rubbish. Technically, that's possible. <laughs> you could have an agent that completely answers your emails and you can even put some controls on it. Yeah. But the point is, um, uh, look, uh, I mean, I guess for people to feel a little bit more comfortable, mm. I mean, AI is nowhere near at the point where it can actually, in general, replace uh, what a human is doing. Mm. Um, it is really, I guess, the, the 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 routine tasks. It is in the specific context, and even then, we have to supply the context, mm. uh, etc. So um, it it needs to be managed. It needs to be well managed. Do you disclose that um, an employee has been assisted by an AI in a communication with a client? Um, is that an ethical consideration at all? Is that something that that is a, that's a very good point? Because in journalism. Uh, Already there's discussions going on about, you know, if you use GPT, for example, to help you write an article, should you as the journalist disclose in that article that that article was partially written by an AI? I think that's a very good question. The mm. point also related to that, if you're using that, GTP has assimilated all this information, mm. which may or may not have been copyrighted by the original um, publisher. Of Another issue, yes. Mm. So, so I think in, in journalism, it uh, – it is it is very very uh, you know valid and concerning in in our case i mean 
We are not uh, trying to rewrite Shakespeare or uh, we are <laughs> trying to answer pretty basic questions. Yeah. So I think um, that is, the, the, but that's a good question. Actually, um, at, at this stage, in terms of the pilot, I yeah. don't think that it is actually um, saying that, but, uh, but it is down, really, it is really using infor mm -hmm. internal information. Yeah, like copyright is not even an issue. I think, yeah. um, like I said, the privacy uh, and the accuracy aspect is probably the bigger concern in that yeah. respect because um, yeah, um, then almost then, a disclaimer at the copyright bottom. or the disclaimer. Yeah. But the point is actually, one has to be careful you put mm. the disclaimer there because you are still fully accountable for that answer. You, right. I don't think you can get away. I mean, so, so software terms of use, you would know very well. Typically, we'd say that this, um, there is no uh, warranty provided that the software is um, user, has any use whatsoever. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Protect okay. our base. But the, the point completely. is, if, you, if you're certainly, if you're giving customer advice, yeah. Look, if you're talking about phase, there's advice and advice as well. If you're talking phase regulated advice, now we're clearly not using it for that. Right. Uh, but look, at that may come, but, but much more eventually. If you're using to generate a nudge or a tip, et cetera, do you, today mm -hmm. we generate lots of nudges and tip, uh, tips that are generated off our streaming platform. Mm -hmm. That will tell you, you know, you could have saved money if you did that or whatever. Does it say here, putting a disclaimer there actually devalues the effort because you have to stand by your communication. Mm -hmm. uh, that's really, I guess, my main point is you cannot absolve, if people are absolving themselves by saying this was generated by AI, I, I think that is going to, to really weaken the trust in the system. If you're using the technology, you, you have to use it in a way that you can actually be responsible for the output. As we come to a conclusion on this uh, conversation, Christoph, I want to maybe look a little bit into the future. Um, longer term, say, and I know making predictions in technology is very, very difficult because technology changes so quickly, but let's look 10 years from now. Um, AI has advanced in leaps and bounds in that time. How would it have changed the financial services industry? And how would I, as a customer, say, of FMB, um, see my bank differently because you have deployed AI so extensively in your organization? Yeah, so I think it, it is going to the, the it is going to be a, a revolution, but it will happen evolutionary, okay. if I can say. So Won't ten years tomorrow. will ten years be very different from now? Yes, um, I, I think the bulk of what you will need to have will be available twenty four seven, and it will be a natural language um, that is just uh, easier to understand, and it will incorporate um, a significant amount of advice that will have the aim of improving the outcome mm. for the customer. Um, and uh, undoubtedly, and the point is, if we are not doing it, someone else will do it. Mm. And um, then the intermediaries will come in and you will be banking with the big tech then because they will be providing it and our, us banks will be commodity providers plumbing at the back end. That's <laughs> the big fear, banks. <laughs> mm -hmm. So that is why uh, we are doing this uh, for our own survival. You're right. Um, and, but it is, it is going to, I do think that it will be, the experience will be a radically improved customer experience. Will it lower the cost of financial services substantially? Absolutely. But it will lower the cost of education, um, of legal services. Imagine um, anybody can have access to expert medical advice, to expert legal advice, um, to expert education mm. that is tailored for you or for your kid, for their age, for their exact needs. That is probably the future that and we're we'll looking hold, at. And will hold the hand along in, the way. In 10 years. And will hold the hand along mm. the way. Um, that ultimately, that is where we, that I firmly believe we will be there. Yeah. In a decade, absolutely. Um, I think the, the implications are severe, um, uh, but the implications are very good from a global economy perspective, from a value creation perspective, from an access to information, insight, knowledge, where nowadays, um, you know, if you, if, you are, if you have a lot of money, you can have the best education. You can have the best lawyers if you need lawyers. I don't know why you would need lawyers, but if you <laughs> need them. Um, AI, that's one profession I think AI the, should get rid the, of. Yeah. <laughs> best healthcare, healthcare providers. Mm. Um, where in the truth, this will actually make that significantly more available. Ironically, yeah. um, I think self-driving cars, the future is very different from what people thought it would be. If you look at the Star Trek's, or the, or the Star Wars, or any of these futuristic movies, you know, people have space travel and they have robots doing all the work and people are doing yeah. the thinking. Yeah. Actually, ironically, 
Um, robotic technology is significantly advances significantly slower than um, than what AI advances. Mm -hmm. So robotics will still be probably expensive. People will probably still be driving cars, mm -hmm. um, especially in South Africa. But yeah. Yeah. Um, in much of the world, you know, a lot of the, a lot of um, you know still have plumbers and electricians, and um, sure. people will still do farming, etc. Um, I think, but a lot of the thinking assistants mm. will be done on automated basis. That's what the generative, res uh, you know. AI revolution is going to enable is a lot of the information processing and insight mm -hmm. um, is going to be able to be augmented in a in a materially profound way. There are no doubt youngsters watching this discussion and being inspired by what you've said and and probably maybe even deciding that they want to take up a career in this field. Um, what would you say to them? Uh, so let's say a, someone in high school now is thinking AI might be a career choice for them. What should they be studying and um, do they have to be very good at mathematics? Okay, that's a great question. I would actually say that probably programming is as important or not, or more important than mathematics. In terms of using uh, generative AI, so I would have always told people, look, I think um, engineering actuarial is the fields of the future. Um, and today we probably employ in the bank more chemical engineers than electronic engineers oh, because wow. chemical engineers don't want to work on plants. <laughs> They're very smart. <laughs> They're smart enough to figure out that they don't want to work on the plant. They'd rather work in a cushy office. I always <laughs> ask them, why did, you, why did you study that? Industrial engineers? Um, so so I, I do think, though, that this technology will revolutionize every service industry. Every service industry. Um Though, so, so, so while I'm saying, for example, I think, you know, plumbing electricians, maybe that will not be as changed as much, but actually anybody that's studying um, at, at university, um, uh, if you, or if you're in high school, I think becoming better computer literate, mm. um, being able to program, the reason why it's important is it allows you to think procedurally, mm -hmm. which is in this case as important you don't. You are probably not going to build the statistical models, mm -hmm. large language models. You are not going to um, build the vector search that is going to find the optimal embedded answer. Okay, I'm talking a bit jargon here, sure. but you don't have to do that because we've got teams of people that are going to build that. Mm -hmm. um, but the the but but if you want to do if you want to be a lawyer, you have to understand that. The traditional job of a paralegal where you're going through, reading through hundreds of cases to find the case that looks like mm. this case, mm -hmm. that will be automated. Mm -hmm. So, but, but of course, you will then have to um, apply higher level thinking to, to, to synthesize that and to understand how you would want to position it, etc. So I think becoming techno technologically literate mm. and embracing the technology is going to be critical. It doesn't matter what, what service industry yeah. um, you are working on. But yes, it may have a bigger impact in certain industries. I think if you are pursuing um, uh, um, it in the field of technology itself, there is still huge scope. So, so um, our number one shortage is still for data engineers, not for statistical people, but data engineers. Mm -hmm. People can program, move data around, make data, do the data quality checks, make sure ML ops. So running, um, let's say, a machine learning operation that is adapting itself based on information it gets, that it can adjust to the latest modus of operandi, of fraud, et cetera. Those areas, th those are super high demand jobs. Mm -hmm. um, obviously, if people are interested yes. in this field, as opposed to thinking that you want to become, let's say, a pure mathematician, um, et cetera. But of course, having an understanding of mathematics um, is, not, is a good thing. Um, so I would certainly say you, you certainly want to be more than maths literate, <laughs> yeah. um, uh, but you don't have to pursue just a field, uh, mathematics. And actually what we're applying, and this is more statistics than mathematics. That's why actuarial science is probably more statistics than mathematics. Mm. Um, engineering I always, I always love because engineering just, you, you learn design skills which you do not learn if you do, um, let's say, a, a BSc or even actual science, you, 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 you can understand and analyze problems. Mm. You don't necessarily learn the design skills. You can't build a control system. You've, you, you, never, you were never taught to analyze a system and design a computer or you know, something that works in a, in a network environment or a control system mm -hmm. um, uh, or do you know, signal processing, et cetera. Which, okay, so I'm punting a bit of engineering there. Um, but yes, those are, I mean, that's, that's some, some ideas from my side, sure. but it is like, we are not employing just from one discipline. That's maybe that comes out. It's a multidisciplinary well. area. This is yeah. still, if we find smart people, we will, we will um, hire smart people mm -hmm. in any discipline. 
Is there anything the universities in South Africa should be doing differently in your view, given your experience in that field, um, to, 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 to get graduates yes. ready for this field? So, look, I, I once had the um, had the, the privilege of presenting to the NISFAS board. But, okay, that was that was quite a while ago. I think things have really changed. That was when it was still a loan scheme, and now it's mm-hmm. actually open market. Okay. I, I do think in South Africa we are not smart at how we allocate resources in education. Okay, and, and that sounds like a like a profound statement, but it's probably true. We are not really making sure that – we are not necessarily funding the programs that will create uh, jobs that people – will be able to add value to the economy. I think that that is something that we I think politically that is that is a probably a step away from where we are. Okay. I do think that the um the the, the STEM programs are are um at least generating the you know they're in, in by and large generating the kind of quality output that we want. There is some fine tuning for example I mentioned data engineering mm. uh, uh, computer engineering there is some of that we seem to be uh, you know I, I just see by what we hire we generate an excess of certain Engineers mm-hmm. uh, that, that that clearly, but that we can employ in the bank, but they uh, we don't necessarily give people career guidance to the point is you know are you actually going to work in that field? Mm-hmm. Then I think we are completely underplaying um, all the the technical and um, um, artisanal and other work. If you you can talk to ESCOM, I mean getting people to weld uh, boilers, right? Build uh, build machines, etc. That's where we have got a major short. Um, we are we are very far behind. In Germany, they have got th- those are fields are not seen as inferior, mm-hmm. and, and mm-hmm. even like I mentioned, a plumbing electrician, those are high demand, highly paid jobs. Why do people think um, you know that I, I shouldn't become that? Right? I think we should. Um, there's gonna. This is gonna be actually. If people thought that being intellectual was gonna be the high paying jobs, this is kind of gonna. This brings some competition into mm. that, mm. Uh, where I think people have to be. Uh, Either more practical and do something, I'm not saying with their hands, but but understand sure. what will not be impacted. And or if you're doing an intellectual job, understand that you're going to have mm. to use technology to do your job better. Plenty to think about. Uh, we could uh, actually continue this conversation for hours, but we are thoroughly out of time. Dr. Christoph Nivot is Chief Data and Analytics Officer at First Rand Group. It's been a brilliant discussion. Thanks for sharing your insights with our audience. Thank you. Duncan, thanks for having me. Pleasure.